Good morning. It's good to see you all here. And uh, just a couple quick things as we get started. First of all, I wanted to um, just bring awareness to uh, this latest group of members who've joined the church. Um, You may have noticed when you came in, when the announcement slides were going, um, these are new members that just joined the church within the last month. We don't have all the pictures yet, but these are the ones we do have. So just want to bring your awareness to these families. Um, If you see any of these folks, some of them are in this service, would you be sure and give them a big hug and let them know we're glad to have them as a part of our church family. And uh, we'll continue to roll these for the next few weeks as well. If you miss some, uh, hang around after the service, we'll run them again. I just want to introduce you to those who have just joined the church. So uh, excited to do that. Um, Also want to say um, welcome to the church if you're a visitor with us and and maybe I haven't had the chance to to introduce myself to you or maybe you've been visiting for a few weeks or a few months and we haven't had a chance to chat. Um, I want to let you know that I'm going to be down the hallway on the left, the very end of the hallway, there's a meeting room. Uh, with some coffee, and I'm going to be hanging out in that room after this service with the sole purpose of meeting you. And so uh, even if we know names, but I haven't got to hear uh, your story or a little bit of where, where you're from, just want to invite you to come join me and uh, spend some time chatting down there. And, uh, and, and, and like I said last week, if you don't come down there, I'll be there by myself just hanging out. So um, please come down there and, and let me get a chance to know you better, especially if you're new here to the church. Um, Genesis chapter 2 is where we are going to be this morning, Genesis 2. We are uh, done with Thanksgiving, right? And hopefully you've already began your workout routine, getting rid of all that Thanksgiving regret. And uh, and Christmas is right around the corner. Today is the first Sunday in uh, in the Advent season. There are four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, This is the first of the four. And so we're starting a new sermon series today entitled The Real Tree of Christmas. And so I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. Um, But I also want to let you know about the booklets that you may have received when you came in. Um, if you didn't, we'll have those available on the, on the table just outside the doors to take home. This is um, essentially a family worship guide. There are four devotionals in here, um, and they are to coordinate with our Advent Sundays. So you could start this evening with your family. Uh, there's scripture reading that you can read out loud together. There's a few discussion questions so you can talk about the word and uh, begin to lead your family towards the true meaning of Christmas. And then there's a song to sing, a Christmas song that you can sing together. And you can, uh, if you're not a great singer, uh, you can just YouTube your favorite version of it and just kind of sing along as a family. Um, but these are intended to go not just along with the sermon series, but to get our hearts prepared uh, to observe and to celebrate the true meaning of Christmas together as a church family. And so um, another thing as well, Uh, There is an Advent reading, a 24 days of reading scripture in the back. Um, There's a kid's version that goes uh, along with the Jesus Storybook Bible. And then there's the adult version as well. And so that would begin this Thursday. We'll be 24 days out. You could begin uh, reading the Advent scriptures. And uh, we're going to do this together as a church family. So, um, and you may have noticed there's only, you only need one per family. So if you, everybody in your family took one and then Patty came and took a bunch of them back from you, that's why. You just need one. Uh, They're for the whole family. Uh, Patty just want to make sure we had enough for the next service. So, Uh, but if you didn't get one, grab one on the way out. And uh, and hopefully this will help lead your family uh, towards the true meaning of Christmas this year. So. Uh, Today, we are going to begin the Advent series in Genesis chapter 2, which might be a strange place to begin a Christmas sermon series. Uh, The title of the uh, sermon series is The Real Tree of Christmas. I think um, if we think about all the traditions that we have as a culture and you have specifically as a family, uh, anything from Elf on the Shelf to uh, eggnog and 
decorating and certain things that you do, the, one of the primary and most prominent icons of Christmas is the Christmas tree. And, uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to spend four Sundays looking at the real tree of Christmas, uh, not the one we decorate in our homes, but p- quite possibly what that tree might symbolize to you as we look at the real meaning of Christmas together. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, and, uh, and, and we'll get there in just a second. We're going to start in verse 8. So to get ready for where we're going this morning, we're going to be talking about the fallen tree. And so what, one of the things that I've come to discover after years of just studying and reading the word is, is that the, the Bible really is a story about trees. And the, the tree has a prominent role in the narrative of the Bible in its beginning, Genesis 2, as we'll see in just a minute, and all throughout the scriptures ending in Revelation, which is where we'll be just three weeks from today. And so in Genesis chapter 2, what has just happened in Genesis 1 is we have a summary account of creation, days 1 through 7. And at the end of each day, God has declared it is good. However, after the sixth day, after the creation of man, once God was done creating, he says it is very good, and then he rests on the seventh day. Chapter 2 in Genesis is a detailed account of day 6. So the author has written down the summary and decides to go back and give us more information on what happened on day 6. And so this is where we're going to pick up the scriptures this morning in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made, up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the garden is this special place where Adam is put, and this is a garden of trees. Now, in particular, there are two very specific trees present that the scriptures lead us to take note of. One is the tree of life. Now, we're going to find out more about the tree of life as we move through this sermon series, but there's a second tree here, and this is the tree that is, that is most significant to the story we're reading today. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or not good. Now, let's think for a minute about what this means could mean to us. So, the word knowledge here is a really important word, okay? It is the idea of having your mind open to something, but it's a deep, intimate knowledge. It's the same word used to describe the relationship between the husband and wife when Adam knew Eve and she conceived, okay? So it's a deep, intimate knowing of another person, a place, or a thing. It's that kind of knowledge, It's more than just trivia information. It's more than just surface level information about something. It's to know something or someone. And so this is going to be the tree of the deep, intimate knowledge of that which is good and that which is evil or not good. Now, here's what we need to understand. At this point in human history, Adam is only going to have a knowledge of that which is good. God declared it at the end of every day. After he was done creating, he said, this is good. This is good. This is very good. So Adam only had a knowledge of that which was good. He had no awareness then of what was not good, what was perverted or twisted or bent towards evil. 
There was no awareness of jealousy or, um, or anger or hatred or lust. All Adam knew was that which was good. And so in verse 15, we read that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives a law. So Adam is in the garden. He has a knowledge only of that which is good. He has no familiarity with shame or guilt or embarrassment or darkness. He is only aware of that which is holy. And God says, you see the garden? It's full of trees. They're good, they're good and pleasant to eat. You can eat from any of them. But this one tree, which will lead to the knowledge of what is not good. Now, what we're going to see here clearly, I think, in our own lives today is, a, is less clear. Clearly, in this passage, God's law is for Adam's good. Now, think about it. I think we, we way underestimate the power of evil and the impact it has on our lives. See, you and I are born with the knowledge of that which is not good. We don't know what it's like to exist without that knowledge. We don't know what it's like to live in the complete freedom of never having come in contact with that which is evil. Right? Even those who are saved, who have been redeemed by Christ, we have a knowledge we can remember, right? What shame feels like. We know what, what guilt smells like. We know what it means to be embarrassed or be put down, to be left out. We know what it, what it feels like to be jealous or to harbor hatred or bitterness towards another human being. See, we still have a knowledge of these things, but at this moment, Adam has no knowledge of those things, and God's law is for his good. God's law is not a leverage stick for him to bully us or to hold us down or to remind us that we're inferior. God's law, his rules, his commandments are always for our good. And so God gives him the commandment, and the commandment is, Adam, do not eat from this tree, because as soon as you eat of it, you will surely experience and taste death. Now, we're going we're gonna to fast forward to chapter 3, and what's going to happen is that from a biblical context, we understand that Satan is going to appear now to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent, and he's going to begin to twist the words of God, to take what is true and turn it into half-truth or not truth in an effort to derail God's created beautiful plan. And so he ensues a conversation with Eve, and I think that's noteworthy. So who did God give the commandment to? Adam, okay? And we see from the text, it's implied that Adam was to be the spiritual leader of the family, to be a protector of Eve, to be the one who leads his family to obey the laws of God for their good. And so this crafty serpent doesn't come to Adam, but comes to Eve and begins to twist the words of God. We'll pick this up in chapter three, verse five. And here's where the conversation goes. This is what Satan says to Eve. For God knows. So he's explaining why God doesn't want them to eat from this tree. 
God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. That's true, right? It's a tree of knowledge. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that part's true as well. Now we have to keep in mind that Satan himself is an expert on, and on, on the attempt to become like God, to be jealous of God's position, to seek after God's glory and authority. He himself has pursued that. And so now here he is spinning that same lie for Eve saying what? God just doesn't want you to be like him. This law he gave you, it's not for your good, it's to keep you down. God knows if you eat from this tree, you're gonna be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. Isn't that quite ironic, considering the fact that God says, I actually created you, Eve, to be like me, to reflect my image? Now, as the conversation continues, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You see, from her perspective, she just wanted her eyes to be open. She wanted knowledge of something she didn't have knowledge of. She wanted to be like God. So she breaks God's law. And then this very helpful rest of the verse, and she also gave some to her husband. Wait a second. So she took some home? No. Who was with her, and he ate. So you got the scene? Adam, spiritual leader of the family, given the command of God, told to keep and work this garden, to enjoy all the amazing fruit that God had created. But from this one tree to abstain, not because God wanted to be a bully to Adam and to Eve, but because God said, if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open to the knowledge of what is evil and you will surely come in contact with death. Adam, that's on you. You protect your family from this tree. And now here we have a scene where a serpent creeps in and creates this conversation with Eve and he begins to twist God's words and tempt her towards disobedience and Adam was right there. Right there, men. Watching his family, watching the bride that he claimed to love, the bride who overwhelmed his heart when he saw her and said, oh my gosh, she's beautiful. That same bride, he watched her come to the knowledge of evil. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were open. And this is what God said from the beginning. It was the name of the tree. It was a tree of knowledge, a tree of eye opening, a tree of awareness to something that God didn't desire for us to be aware of. And so their eyes were open now to what? To evil. And we're going to see that in just a moment that this awareness of evil is going to impact now. It's going to be a lens through which they look at, and they're going to see everything through this lens. So before this, they saw the world. They saw what was holy and what was good, crystal clear. And now there's this tainted lens through which they see the world. And, the, and, and temptation is going to begin to dwell inside their hearts. And look at what we read. The eyes of both were open, and they knew, there's that word again, that they were naked. Now, didn't they know that they were naked before? They knew that neither one of them had clothes on, but they didn't realize there was such thing as not naked. Right? 
There was no reason to be not naked in front of one another. Now, all of a sudden, something is churning in Adam's heart. When he looks at Eve, there's this new desire there that wasn't there before. A sense of perversion and lust was now dwelling inside of him. And so when he looked at his wife, created holy and beautiful to reflect the image of God, he saw something evil. The same thing happened for Eve. For me, I think this is probably the first struggle with self-image. She looked at herself rather than seeing herself as a beautiful creation of God. She realized not only that there was nakedness, but there was also not nakedness. There was a reason to hide, a reason to cover up now. And so they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin cloths. Such a subtle detail in the story, but do you feel the impact? I just wonder how many of us today are still using our outer garments to hide something. Whether it's low self-esteem or maybe it's this shackling sense of guilt or shame over something you've done in the past or something been done to you. How many of us get dressed in the morning thinking about projecting an image that's not really us or hiding an image that really is us? I just wonder with the ladies in the room, first of all, I'm not an anti-makeup guy, um, but I think God created you ladies beautiful without it. Seriously, it's my opinion, but I think you're more beautiful without it. Um, I just wonder, though, how many ladies in our culture today are hiding something, and that makeup's just a mask, doing more than just hiding wrinkles or age and blemishes, but hiding shame or guilt, darkness from the past. See, this is what's going on here. Just a subtle detail in this story, but you see the impact that the awareness of evil has already had on humanity. In a moment, boom, everything's perverted. Everything's jaded. Everything's twisted with the knowledge now of evil. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. How ironic that they're trying to use what God created good to hide from God. Hiding themselves not only from one another, but now they're hiding themselves from God himself. Just like we said just a minute ago, I wonder how many of us either right now or at a time in our our lives have attempted to hide from God either some sense of bitterness or anger, um, maybe some seed of shame or guilt over something you've done or something that was done to you either way. And so your, your human response was not only to hide from others, those who know you the best, but hide from God. To disconnect from church and community and from being around people who when they look at you, they try to look past the mask and see the real you. And here Adam and Eve are hiding from God. And so this direct impact of disobedience to God is a severed relationship between one another and a severed relationship between God. Now there's hiding in the way where there was no hiding before. And God comes to, does he come to Eve? No, who does he call into account first? Adam. So God starts with a question, but the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? 
And the man said, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Three things here that didn't exist before the fall. Fear, I was scared. I had this new emotion inside of me. It was causing my heart to beat fast. Adrenaline was flowing, God. And my knee-jerk reaction was, was to what? To hide. I just now I have this new knowledge of being naked, to being ex exposed for who I really am before you. And so I was scared, and so therefore I hid. Before the fall, there was no fear. There was no awareness of nakedness. There was no need for hiding. And then God says in verse 11, Adam, who told you that you were naked? Now, we know that God knows the answer to this question, but what he's what he explaining to Adam is that you've come into an awareness of something that you didn't have before. This is like the parents, this is like when we ask our kiddos, who taught you that word? That's a scary question because, you know, we don't want to hear it. You did. <laughs> where did you learn that? And it's not so much that as a parent, we need to know where they learned it as much as we want them to be aware of where they learned it, right? And this is what God is doing with this question. He's reminding Adam of why he now knows he was naked. Who told you this? Have you eaten the tr of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. Now, verse 12 enters the blame shift game. You familiar with the blame shift game? Nothing's my fault, right? It's always somebody else's fault. The man said, see her? That woman, not only is that a woman, you gave her to me. So if it's not her fault, it's your fault. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, that might have been, might have been a legitimate excuse if the fruit from this tree looked like the fruit from any other tree and Adam wasn't with her. And Eve just brought it home and mixed it in with a little bushel basket of other fruit and he accidentally ate it. That's what he's proposing here, but that's not what happened, is it? So what does he do? This has got to be somebody else's Fault. Now, before we over-humorize this, what's happening here? He is, he is becoming familiar with the taste of guilt and shame, and he doesn't like it. Right? So this has got to be somebody else's fault. Because what I feel inside my heart is telling me that this is my fault, and it can't be my fault. I don't like the way this feels. It's got to be somebody else's fault. It's either her fault or your fault. You decide. And so Adam shifts the blame to Eve, and then she follows suit. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, busted, the serpent, the one that was just over here, that's the one. He deceived me, and I ate. It's got to be his fault. Devil made me do it. Now, this is a, a knee-jerk reaction to the shame that we feel as a result of disobeying God. It's got to be somebody else's fault. And we, we, we don't have to be taught this, do we? Any of your parents have more than one kiddo in the home? Sometimes it's just so stinking hard to figure out who started it, right? Because they're both convinced, or all three of them are convinced, how many kids you have, that it's somebody else's fault. And they'll go to great lengths to convince you that it's not their fault. He started it. He started it. And then you get to that point where you say, I don't care who started it. You're both in trouble. 
which is the case here. Adam, I hear you trying to blame Eve. Eve, I hear you trying to blame the devil. Now see, here's the thing we've got to understand right here in this moment. For Adam and Eve, the best thing for them, the best thing for them would be to own their sin before a holy God. To say, for Adam to say, God, I failed. The commandment you gave me, I disobeyed. And I watched my wife get lured in by Satan. I watched, I sat and watched it all. I failed her and I failed you. That's on me. It would have been the best thing for Adam to do. For Eve, right? To say, you know what? My, my husband, Adam, he told me about this. He warned me that you said that we'll surely experience death if we eat from this. I knew that, yet I played in to the lie of the enemy and I believed him. I believed the enemy more than I believed you in that moment and I disobeyed you as well and I ate of it. That would have been the best thing for them in that moment. It's not what they do, is it? They shift blame and they try to hide the fact that they sinned. Now, really, how different is that from you and me? How hard is it to own sin? Why is it so hard? I'll tell you why. Because what God said would happen, happened. Sin brings death. That's a big, heavy word. And I think you and I, I think we way underestimate the weight of sin and shame that we have grown accustomed to. As little kiddos, right? I mean, we learn the word no is one of the first words we learn, right? To experience and encounter disobedience, punishment, letting somebody down. So we have always lived with the knowledge of disobedience, shame, and guilt. See, for Adam and Eve, this was a shell shocker. Can you imagine? Going from no knowledge of evil, and now all of a sudden, whew, the world's evil. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at what God says to the serpent and what he says to Eve. So, the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. We would expect that. Enmity between the serpent and the woman. But look at what he says. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel, you shall bruise his, your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall, I just insert the word attempt, to rule over you. <laughs> this is not a good thing. This is not God saying this is the way it should be. This is God saying this is what happened once sin and death into the world. Women will live in such a way that it's contrary to their husbands. 
This is compared to, to sin in the very next chapter. That sin sits at your door like a, like a lying, and its desire is to what? To capture you. Its desire is contrary to you. It's the same thing here. This isn't a beautiful picture of humble leadership, man. This is distorted leadership. And what God is saying to Eve is from this point forward, your husband, maybe it's a result of what happened because he's going to keep blaming you for every time something goes wrong, but he's going to try to control you, dominate you, rule you. This is not a beautiful picture of humanity being painted here. But probably as significant or more significant is the fact that this is not just about Adam and Eve, is it? God says this enmity won't only be between the serpent and Eve, but guess what, Eve? This is going to get passed on to your children. There's going to be this continual enmity between Satan and your offspring, and it's not going to go away. Not only that, there's going to be pain in bringing forth children. You might say that's a fitting punishment for Eve, but he wasn't just talking about Eve. Eve, not only are you going to experience pain in childbirth as a reminder of disobedience, but guess what? So will your daughters. When your daughters are crying out in childbirth and the pain that they're experiencing, that will be a reminder of what just took place. And guess what? Their daughters will experience it as well. See, this curse of sin and death is a shadow that's going to be cast over humanity. Human history is going to be tainted with what just happened. There will be an ongoing battle between Satan and the children of Adam and Eve. You see, at the garden, it wasn't just about the tree. It was also about the family tree. And at the place where Adam and Eve, at the tree where they disobeyed God, something happened to the family tree of all humanity. The ongoing battle between Satan and Adam and Eve would be a family issue. There will be ongoing struggle with sin and shame and brokenness from generation to generation. There will be an ongoing strife between husbands and wives. Parents will pass this sin pattern onto their children generation after generation. Now, this is such a significant story in your Bible because here's what follows from this point in your Bible forward until we get to Christmas, the birth of Christ, what you're going to read about in the Old Testament, story after story, generation after generation, tainted by the curse of sin. There isn't going to be a human being who lives who is free from this curse. Even the heroes in the Old Testament, Samson, David, are going to be tainted by the curse of sin and death. And so by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, there is a crying out for help. There is a crying out. If you read through the Bible, just Genesis through Malachi, there is a deep sense of something needs to fix this. Kingdom after kingdom, king after king, attempt after attempt, the people keep trying to fix themselves, and all they do is muddy the water and keep circling back around to their own sin, and they keep spiraling this curse of sin and death. Now, this is not only true for human history. This is true of our own lives. If we could just get real for a moment. When you and I live on our own wisdom, right? We see this in our kiddos, right? They always know what's best for themselves. 
And as good parents, we see them, we say, no, you don't know what's best for yourself. It's just what you want in that moment. And for some reason, we buy into a lie that you outgrow that. We just become bigger versions of that. We get to a place in our life where no longer is there parental authority over us. We love that freedom. Finally, right? Finally, I can implement my plan, my strategy, the way I want to live life. Nobody here to tell me what to do. And we just repeat the same cycle. When Adam and Eve, what they did at the tree of the knowledge, it severed their entire family. It severed the relationship with God. And what took place in the garden set in motion this devastating story that we call human history. You can dress it up. You can, you can try to pretend like there aren't issues. But each one of us is acquainted with sin, shame, and guilt and all that comes from that, aren't we? We're very familiar with the weight of guilt. What we have to understand about Christmas is that the birth of Jesus is God's response to this catastrophic moment in human history. There is no disconnect between the birth of Jesus in the manger and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. It is the direct response and solution from God. Let me read two verses of scripture from the New Testament. Galatians 4. We read in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, or just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's Christmas, right? Born under the law, the weight of the law that you and I feel. To what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Or the Gospel of Matthew says it this way, Talking about Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, Christmas is God undoing the fall at the tree. This is the place where you and I receive our adoption, where God takes our family tree and redeems it. I don't know about you, my family tree needs some redemption. If I just go on living the way those who have gone before me go on living, I will continue this spiral of sin and death. I'll pass it on to my boys, and they'll pass it on to their children and their children after them. I need redemption. Redemption is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. God sent his son born of a woman, born of a virgin, born under the weight of the law to redeem those of us who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. God changes your family tree in that moment. Now, I want to end here with you today and we're going to continue this journey. We started in Genesis 2. We're going to end in Revelation 22. And we're going to journey through the different significant trees and the in the Bible together. But the most important point I think we can make in this whole time together is this. If you have not come to the place in your life journey where you have recognized and realized, you know what? You have sinned. To the place where you've quit knee-jerk reacting to your sin and hiding and pretend like it's somebody else's fault or it's not even there. Okay? 
If you've not come to that place in your journey where you've honestly before God said, this is the mess I've made, it's mine, I'm responsible for it, and I need Jesus to forgive me. If you haven't come to that place, I'm gonna pray for you. If you go through Christmas this year without receiving the free gift of forgiveness and salvation that comes from God, you've missed it. You've missed it all. And Christmas for you will just be another family tradition where you drink eggnog once a year and decorate your house up with lights and greenery once a year and you'll put it all away in the attic and wait till next year and nothing will be different. So I'm gonna pray for us now and I'm gonna invite you to pray with me as our worship team comes back up. And as we get ready to pray, I just wanna bring an awareness to something. Your decision to become a Christian has to be your decision. I can't do it for you. I can't pray it for you. I can't do it for you. The elders of this church can't pray it for you. You have to do this on your own. If you're at that place in your journey where you're ready to have the shackles of shame and sin and guilt unlocked, to receive the promise that God calls a new life, to have your relationship with God restored. Now, I'm going to invite you to pray now with me. These aren't magical words. You can pray in your own heart, your own words, but it could go something like this. God, today I want to be honest about my sin. Like Adam, I'm guilty. God, today I want to bring my sin before you and say that unless you intervene, I am hopeless and helpless. So right now in this moment, God, I want to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. God, will you forgive me of my sins? Will you unshackle me from my shame? Will you set me free from the rat race of trying to pretend like I'm something that I'm not? God, I want to begin a new journey with you today. I want to begin a new life with you today. In this very moment, God, I need you. you pray that prayer with me this morning or one like it, I'm going to encourage you that when we stand to sing in a minute that you would come grab one of our prayer partners or elders and just let them know, hey, today I decided to become a Christian. Give them just the opportunity to pray over you and answer any questions you have. For the rest of us, I just want to leave this last question to consider. have been in fact set free, if we have now had the amazing opportunity to taste the goodness of God and to know what it feels like to have the weight of sin and shame removed from our shoulders, why are we so prone to cycle back around? 
God, this morning, would you call us all into your mercy and your grace? Could you refresh and renew your spirit within us, God?